Hello, it's Anna Perro and Sophie Little here. We run Soundyard and we are the producers of Chris Skinner's Countryside Podcast. We're excited to tell you we've been nominated for an award. It's a public vote, so if you'd like to vote for us, well, that would just be amazing. You can head to norfolkartsawards.org. Look out for Soundyard. We're under the Broadcast and Media Award. And it's such a pleasure putting the show together and listening with you. So let's join Chris and Matthew on High Ash Farm. Hello. (laughs) I'm farmer and nature lover Chris Skinner at High Ash Farm. It's the end of a long but beautiful late autumn day. It's just after four o'clock in the afternoon. The sun's just setting on the western horizon. And as I drove up to this little area of woodland called Notre Dame Wood, planted by the children of Notre Dame School in Norwich in 1990, and it's up there 20 or 30 feet at the moment, there's a flock of sheep Cotswold sheep at the top of the hill and in amongst the sheep were the best part of a thousand starlings just feasting right at the end of the day before they fly off and form one of their world famous murmurations and then on a field next to them still at the top of the hill the rooks, crows and jackdaws were all gathering well over a thousand the whole top of the field was jet black But I've come in here, uh, it's just beginning to get dark, so I've dug myself a small, shallow grave. (laughs) Don't laugh. (laughs) You have to be slightly demented to capture the sounds of nature and you find yourself doing all sorts of odd things. Um, So I'm now going to scramble into the very densest part of the woodland underneath a giant um, Scots pine there and just trying to be as quiet as I can because in about 15 or 20 minutes time the pheasants will come in here to roost and I hope to capture one of those sounds. So here I come, it's pretty dark already although it's light outside the woodland and here it is, I've made myself a kind of a, a wigwam over a shallow grave which is about a foot deep. Uh, the, there's a bank in this woodland, it's quite steep down here and I've covered up uh, a sheet with some nettles as well and I've got two coats under my arm which I'm now going to put under the wigwam so I have something dry to lay on and just move this stinger nettle out of the way and that stick there I want to be as quiet as possible because the pheasants will walk into the wood and they'll choose a particular tree to fly up into and the cock pheasants hopefully will make that lovely sound that they make and I'll explain hopefully fingers crossed what we're hearing in about 15-20 minutes time so just going to switch the microphone off for a few minutes And then when we start to have some activity, I'll turn it back on and we'll be able to listen to roasting, sorry, roosting pheasants. (laughs) Right, see you soon.
Countryside Podcast with Matthew Gudgeon. Dread, dread, double dread. I've only just got into my grave and not covered myself up properly yet. And Magpie has just come in to the tree right above my head. <laughs> Ever watchful magpies, so something's not quite right in the wood beneath them, and just screaming out an alarm call, which is going to put the pheasants off, I think. <laughs> oh dear. Hopefully it will go away soon. It's just after half past four. Almost pitch black in this small area of woodland. And I'm laying here in my grave. <laughs> and pheasants are all around me. Some already gone up into the trees to roost. And there's still three or four hen pheasants which don't call when they go up into the trees to roost, but they kind of have a squeaking noise. What they would call pillow talk, really, when they're up in the trees. I've always thought of pheasants as completely stupid. <laughs> because why would you advertise where you're going to sleep by flying up in a tree and shouting about it as loudly as you can. And I think it's me that is bereft of a few thinking, a little bit of thought, <laughs> because the cock pheasants go up to roost ahead of the pheasants, ahead of the hen pheasants, and then they call. And the hens usually go up into the same tree, so you can have eight, ten, even a dozen pheasants, many of which in the trees above me now. I can just see the faint silhouettes of them through the conifer trees. But it works like magic. As pheasants go up into the trees to escape their predators. Foxes, badgers. A stoat would probably have a go at one. And any other ground-dwelling creatures would think of a peasant as a very tasty morsel. But if you disturb them at night and walking through the wood perhaps doing a bit of poaching with a torch in one hand, a gun in the other, then pheasants come into their own and they explode out to the tree they're roosting in. 
fly in every other direction you can imagine, making a huge noise, so you have bedlam. So any potential predator is lost. It's not going to have a meal. So they're really quite safe. Jackdaw just coming in to roost above me. Lovely sound. So, still a few pheasants. I can see the silhouettes on the woodland floor just walking round. Head on one side, then the other. They have no idea how I'm here. I'm just peeping over the top of the little grave that I've dug. I'm covered up with a dark green blanket, so completely camouflaged. And the time of year reminds me of something that happened to me when I was eight years old, <laughs> 65 years ago. <laughs> I was invited by one of the farm workers to go fishing. <laughs> it was knocking off time on the farm, so it was getting to half past four. Uh, farm workers back then worked a really long day, often starting at six in the morning. Sometimes if you were the uh, head stockman milking the cows, it would be earlier than that. And the farm worker was called Charlie Graver and he lived next door to the Red Lion public house in Stoke and each day he'd cycle to the farm on a sort of sit up and beg old bicycle. <laughs> it had a basket on the front and he'd bring a bottle of tea perhaps something for lunch and in the top of the basket always was his dog it's a Norfolk Terrier called Skippy and Charlie said to me one afternoon would you like to go fishing boy and he knew that I was dead keen on sitting by the River Tass uh, and fish all day if possible at weekends <laughs> and so it was an offer that I couldn't refuse but I don't know to this day whether my parents knew about what happened or not <laughs> because we set off from the farmyard in the dark. Uh, Skippy was with us and, oh, Tawny Owl, just calling out. Just heard it in the background. Anyway, Skippy was with us and we set off quite a walk to the northern boundary of the farm where it joins a large shooting estate called Crown Point Estate. And we were right on the boundary. Uh, and it was properly dark then. And Charlie had brought his fishing rod with him, which I thought was a bit odd. I wasn't aware that there was any large stretches of water there. Nevertheless, at eight years old, you don't ask too many questions, especially from Charlie. His name on the farm was One Tooth Charlie because all he had was one incisor tooth left. And the other thing that made him memorable is he smelt. <laughs> That's a polite word. In fact, he absolutely stunk, because apart from personal hygiene, he, he had something called chewing tobacco. And occasionally he'd take a, a small slice of this compacted tobacco and chew it for a while and then spit it out. So you were always rather cautious of him. Although he was diminutive little chap, he was only about five feet tall, 
I can remember him like yesterday. Anyway, we got to the northern boundary of the farm and walked down in what is now Boudicca's Way. Uh, and it's a footpath uh, with large hedge and old trees each side of it. And when we got there, he started to assemble the fishing rod, which was a cane rod in about four sections. And it was quite tall, so when he'd got it all together, it was the best part of 12 feet long. But it didn't have a reel. And, and I was just trying to puzzle out what he was going to do. And we walked down the what is now the footpath, and then he stopped. And on the end of the fishing rod was a rabbit snare, just neatly arranged in a little circle on the end of the rod, just about big enough to put your fist through, clenched fist. And he was looking up into the hawthorn bushes, favourite place for pheasants to roost, just as they are above me this evening. And he'd spotted one, and he just stood there, Skippy sitting down, not making a noise, unlike my present demented terrier rat, but he put the fishing rod up in the tree very slowly, very carefully. You could just about see through the canopy the tiny little snare. He'd got glasses on, I don't know if they helped or not, but after just a few seconds he didn't move. He gave the fishing rod a sudden yank and down through the tree came a cock pheasant onto the ground. Skippy was on it in a second, I'll never forget it, and a second later it was a dead pheasant. Hardly made a noise. Tawny Owl. And that was my expedition into the art of fishing. But not for fish, for, for pheasants. <laughs> and I... It affected me because perhaps it was in the dark and it's kind of one of those pages in my childhood that I can turn back to and remember the smells, the sights, the sounds. <laughs> and it's kind of etched into my memory, but it had an effect on me which, in a funny way, lasted right through to the present day and affects now what I did on High Ash Farm uh, and that's what happens here today it's respecting wildlife so he didn't kill the pheasant for sport or for fun he didn't shoot one or wound one I suppose you'd call it poaching but nevertheless it taught me a lot but he took it home and that was a real prize for him to have pheasant which he presumably cooked in his one-up, one-down little cottage. So, there we are. A memory from my childhood, 65 years ago. And that tawny is still calling in the background. morning on High Ash Farm. 
And lovely to be back with another of Chris Skinner's Countryside Podcasts. We're zooming through the weeks now, and I hope you're enjoying these broadcasts. And uh, what a lovely blue sky, Chris. Here yes. we are, more yes. than halfway through November, and the weather's gorgeous. Yes, we're getting towards the end of November, in fact. And uh, it's absolutely glorious time of year, and a time of year I absolutely love, because there's so much to see. We're standing near a little road that runs right through the centre of High Ash Farm. Car just going past. But the colours of these yes. leaves that, against the blue sky. That low sun, uh, sort of December the 21st is the shortest day that will be the sun will be at its lowest but we're getting up there now and although it's early morning the sun's coming through almost at right angles to the trees and this is a delight it's High Ash Farm's really well timbered. There are about 10 areas of permanent mature woodland and we have three new areas of woodland at the farm and this is one of them. So welcome, Matthew, to High Ash Farm. Welcome to the Lettuce Wood. What a strange name. It's called the Lettuce Wood because when my parents came to the farm in 1942, um, there was a field of lettuces here and the previous farmer had left them and so they all got ploughed in eventually and so it's just known as the lettuce field and it has been through my childhood. They weren't iceberg then? <laughs> no, no, it was left till into the winter months but it's solid clay under here and uh, it's now a new woodland because this area is such a small field for the modern agricultural machinery a few years back before it went was planted in 2006 um, it's really awkward to get the combine in here it's exactly a hectare so it's two and a half acres in old money if so you this, like this woodland which is developing quite quickly now then isn't it if you only planted it in 06 in 2006 so it's at 15 16 years old now but now it looks i mean it's maturing nicely it's absolutely wonderful and it was helped by the year it was planted in spring 2007 we got quite a lot of rain and all around the edge of the wood we've planted what's called a soft edge so you've got hawthorn um, blackthorn and several shrubby plants, hazel all the way round. Here's hazel right behind you with the catkins just beginning to come out. Look up there, there's green catkins, and yes. they'll be shedding pollen in about a month's time, believe it or not. So a soft area around the outside. Are those hips there? They're hips, yes. Yeah, this is dog rose, uh, rosa canina, and it's as fierce as fierce can be. Look at the just, look at <laughs> look My at the, It's razor wire. It's, it's the thorns it, are just absolutely astonishing. And because it produces the hips, it doesn't want um, the to be eaten. The fresh shoots growing up is a great delicacy for the deer who live here at the farm things like roe deer we call them woodland fairies here at the farm they seem to although they're quite large animals they just disappear into the undergrowth and this is really dense already so uh, we've got an understory of hawthorn growing right through the trees are about 15 20 feet high yes already and then so we're still looking at this sort of soft area around the edge of the wood which kind of introduces you to the woodland and you can see some slows still in there they're the fruit of the blackthorn, 
your eyes have just lit up because I can see slow gin just... Can you see them in there? Yes, the I black, can see the, the little blooms on them. That's right, yes. So they're now ripening and once the... Uh, they're very acidic at this time of the year still. And once they shrivel up a bit like that, they've got the, the pip in. They're not actually called berries, they're called droops, which is a funny name. There's the seed of the blackthorn there, just rubbing out all the liquid off the outside. God, it's a lovely smell. Almost smells like slow yeah. gin itself, yeah. doesn't it? <laughs> going to crack open a bottle. Yes, I think so. That's for later in the year. The sun so, isn't over the yard and, arm and yet. Th- so you've got blackthorn. This one's hawthorn, and you can still see some of the berries. And we'll walk in a little bit more because it's really heavy clay. On last week's podcast, Matthew, we talked about sand formation. And this week, just underneath this woodland, We've got some really heavy, heavy clay, lots of fungi coming, and that's the interesting thing in New Woodland. I suppose wetland features are the very fastest to establish, but secondly would be new areas of scrub and woodland. So birds perched in the trees just after they were planted, and uh, they pooped on the ground, and so we got lots of brambles in there. Look at that. You could not get in there. <laughs> it's just so dense. And so you've got the beginnings of a habitat, which is here all the year round. There's a yew in the back there. So there's a bit of a coniferous element in, in there. So I added 50 yew and 50 holly out of my own pocket, although it was funded from uh, DEFRA, Department of Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. They actually funded it under stewardship. But I wanted to have some sort of evergreen component so that uh, in the winter months some, where the birds had somewhere to shelter. But the understory and the density of the, the brambles in there is absolutely incredible. So this, there's a little track right through the middle of the woodland and uh, it's absolutely delightful. So now walking into the sunshine and it's like another world. We've got the, the sun coming down and the, these are young oaks here in the background. That's a, just about 20 feet tall. The leaves are completely dead on those now. Yes, they? they are. That lovely golden colour. Uh, that's field maple with all the seeds hanging on it. Like looks like little helicopter seeds and once you get those harsh easterly winds it blows them off and they can land anywhere on the woodland floor here in amongst the leaf litter and they'll start the next generation of trees as well and this one's a real favorite of mine really crunchy leaves listen to that still on the tree old parchment almost yes and that's hornbeam so a young hornbeam tree and there's the ones just behind, there's one there about 15 feet tall. And then just in there, just spotted it, ones with the horizontal lines on the trunk, just back there, about six feet, going right up to the top. That's wild cherry. And that's absolutely delight. You can come here in late March and it's covered in pure white blossom which is great for bees as well. So you've got a whole variety. But Oh, and there's some holly. Yes, just well. developing nicely Just developing. It's, it's been in, what, 15, 16 years, and it's hardly three Quite feet tall. slow establishing They are, then. yes, but great for creatures. Just look in the top there. There's a ladybird, look. Yes, so prickly leaved. That's the proper British native holly. You can get all sorts of ornamental ones, but these are all British native trees. So we'll just walk to the other side of the track, because not all good news... <laughs> 
Uh, there's a nice seat there, so if you're walking through, there's I've put three little seats in the edge of the woodland. And just walk in a bit. Oh, and lots of teasel as well. Yes. Oops. Nearly fell in a hole. Oh, my God, I nearly fell in the same one. <laughs> holly. Another holly. That one's about four feet tall and very bushy. And I did say it's not all good news. Another ladybird as well. Yes. Yeah. Yes, yeah, it's amazing. Absolutely lovely, isn't it? In we go. Um, right. So these are planted ash trees. Uh, I think I know where you're going with yes, this. Yes, I know. It's so, so sad. Just have a look. This is a young sapling. Look. And it's completely, absolutely dead. Uh, snapping and just absolutely crippled them. So, but having said that, the stocking rate was so high with the oak trees, the field maple and the hornbeam that there's more than enough. But it's just nice to have that general mixture of woodland and when we planted these we had no idea that that was going to happen and this is typical of ash dieback chalara some people call it chalara uh, there's some pl- shoots coming through the, yes it's tried what's happened is it came up it was planted as a whip and it got to about five feet tall and then in about 2010 uh, the ash dieback really came in and it killed all the new growth. And the tree, and this is typical of ash dieback, has sent out even more um, sort of shoots from the original leader. So although a great deal of these up here, look, snap, 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 they're all dead. The big one here, and <laughs> yes, look at that, completely dead. So, and this big one here is also dead but it's got sent out too, then it's just trying to compensate uh, for the, the disease. Des- desperation of a drowning man, really. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So Very sad. This is real suitable habitat for ash trees and all the British natives. That's dogwood over there with those lovely deep yellow leaves on. Hawthorn right beside us with the berries on. Some of them are self-seeded if they don't have a tree guard on the bottom. And I'm just going to walk over here a little bit. There's a clear bit between the trees, so I'm just going to dig a little hole for you. Oh, I wondered why you brought the shovel with you. That's, that's a spade. Isn't it funny how I seem to do all the digging round here? Hey, here we go. And, and take that out like that. We'll soon get down. The ground is is quite wet. There we are. And we'll soon get down because I'm, I'm a fast digger. And you can see oh, it's... Oh, I can see some water down yeah, there. Yeah, we've reached the water table already. Yeah, about get, 18 inches down. Yeah, I'm getting down there, a little bit of water coming out now. And you did did say we were looking at some of the soil. To, it's stuck like glue to the spade. We're getting down. Then in a moment or two, so I get through the top layer of clay... We should get some bright yellow clay down here. So there's which a is sand a... level here as well? No, no, it's not. All the heat, can, can you see the bottom of yes, the hole? yellow. Yellow. It's not gold, is it? The Norfolk Klondike. Nearly there. Yep, we're 18 inches down now. And last spade. Coming out. 
Right, good. Last week we looked at the sand at Winterton on the beach. Sand is formed by kind of physical action of flints and shingle rubbing against each other till you get smaller and smaller fragments. Clay's rather different. It's a chemical reaction of the rain on rocks. Uh, and eventually, oh, I'm quite out of puff after that digging. Oh, poor old Chris. <laughs> you ought to have staff to do this for you. I should do, or, or local presenters. That would be even better. Oh, not insured. Not insured. <laughs> um, so when rain comes through the atmosphere, there's carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And when it rains on the ground, particularly on rocks, anything hard, it gradually dissolves them because it's weak carbonic acid. Acid rain, we call it. It's a bit of a problem sometimes. But it does react with clay and you get these tiny soil particles. So I'm going to give you some. Thank you. And just rub it between your fingers. Mud pies here. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's very... Um, it's, it, well, it's like... Well, it is um, like plasticine, isn't it? Yes, it's very, very fine. It's one of the smallest particle sizes of soil you can get. It smears in your fingers, whereas the sand I gave you some last week, rub between your fingers, it was very coarse yeah. and almost like sandpaper. This is much finer, so it's highly fertile. It's great for wheat, for grass production as well and this field was wheat for about 15 years and it used to on that hectare it would grow about 10 tons of wheat a year till we put the woodland in on it now underneath that um, the top layer of clay which is about a foot deep is sort of chocolate brown in color and then at the bottom where there's no oxygen at all you've got that yellow clay and if you look at it carefully it's full of chalk well, those little white stones. Yes. Are, yeah. Look, that, that, that's chalk. There. Yeah. Well, there's a perfect. bigger piece there. Yeah, perfect. And you could write on a blackboard with that. If I take a piece out like that and rub it between my fingers and crush it, there it is. Pure chalk. Um, and that's the fabric that many of the old barns around Norfolk, particularly south Norfolk, were built on clay block barns. So it's quite important. But there's no oxygen down there. So. It was ploughed at the same depth, so you've got a sort of topsoil of 12 inches. Then there's a very hard pan layer where the old tractor wheels would sort of skid on if you'd ploughed at the wrong time of year. It would form what's called a pan, a very thin, hard layer, and that impedes drainage, which is why we've got the grass on the bottom of the slopes over there. The grass roots go down. These woodland roots here will penetrate through that, and that oak tree beside us is just... You couldn't have a healthier, better-looking oak tree if, if you wanted. They love the clay. They love this type soil type. It doesn't dry out too much in the summer. And it's real, it's one of my favourite spots of the farm, young wood. You can walk in here in the summer. There's all sorts of bird life in here. The barn owls hunt through in amongst the trees. They're still quite open and it's beautiful. Just look at that oak over there behind you. That's, what, 25 feet up. And the sun is just getting the top there. It's, and it's been glowing. Growing more than a foot a year, that one. So uh, it's doing really well. And it um, loves the so soil. Yeah, so it loves this. So I'm going to fill this hole back in. Otherwise, if I bring you here again in a year and we forget, I've dug it because there's orchids already coming in, a common spotted orchid. It's a delight to come in here and actually look at the 
different times of year and you can walk right through the middle of this on one of the permissive walks here at Hirschfeld. So do come, particularly on a sunny day, and enjoy the Norfolk countryside at its most colourful. Thank you, Chris, for showing me the lettuce wood. <laughs> You're very welcome. Come on, let us get back in the car. This is our salad days. We're still with you on High Ash Farm on this uh, edition of the Countryside Podcast with farmer Chris Skinner. And as always, we're absolutely bowled over with all the number of correspondence, emails and letters and cards. It's wonderful to hear from everyone. And I, I do mention again that even if your name isn't heard, then we have looked at your letter, haven't we, Chris? Yes, lots of letters and cards of appreciation and uh, all from all over the country and some of them from all over the world as well. I cannot believe the interest in what we're doing, talking about the natural history of the farm and some of the farming history here as well and we've started all the podcasts off right at the beginning of right back to the stone age and then the romans who invaded uh, this country and settled with the roman capital of eastern britain just on the west side of high ash farm and of course saxons here as well and then some of the early farming history right up to my memory of horses working the fields here and it's been a delight for me and it's taken me back sort of decades <laughs> just thinking how things used to be and how much hard work was here and everybody's responding to that in a very positive way and thank you very much all of you here's an email from bridget gardner a few years ago chris you mentioned the aquifer beneath the farm was at a very low level has the increased rainfall this year affected those water levels? Uh, it will take several years to get down to the aquifer, Matthew. Aquifer is the kind of layer of water um, permeated into the chalk layer ben beneath our feet. The chalk's only just a few feet down. We're at the bottom of one of the valleys here at the farm. And when I went into HLS, that's higher level stewardship, is what it stands for, um, part of the prescriptions I went into, hedge planting, woodland planting, um, and all the hills was to harvest the water that used to run off. There's a field in front of us here, Matthew, with a very sharp slope on it, and it is solid clay. <laughs> We've talked about that field before, it's called Dirty Close. But at the bottom of it, there's a 50 metre wide strip running alongside a stream and that's planted with tusky grass, uh, grasses like tall fescue and coxfoot, which forms clumps. And since I've done that in 2006, there has been no runoff into the stream, but the water is still there on the land and it percolates down but it takes a long time to go through the layers of topsoil subsoil and then right deep down into that chalk layer and then it has to travel a mile to where the water is pumped out to help supply norwich over 20,000 cubic meters a day coming out from underneath high ash farm that gives you an, well, to give you an idea, Mount Everest is about 9,000 metres plus high, so it's twice the height of Mount Everest, a metre square every day. It's astonishing how much water we all use. 
more house building on this side of Norwich as well, large numbers of properties being built, so it's putting pressure on the aquifer. So I think it will take a long time for this winter's rainfall to percolate down into the aquifer so you can actually visually see a difference. High ash farms in what's called the cone of depression from where the water's being pumped out. <laughs> that sort of amuses me, that word. You know, most farmers, if you talk to them, always sound a little bit depressed, but not this farmer because uh, we're harvesting water as well as looking after the environment. Greetings to Joseph and Catherine, who are listening in Northumberland at Headley on the Hill. And they're going to send you some photographs of the beautiful county of Northumberland, which if we couldn't be in Norfolk, Northumberland wouldn't be too bad. I think it would be a second choice. I have a sister and she lives up in the the Lake District, quite close to Kendal. And I must admit the uh, scenery, uh, the countryside, and it's kind of going back in time. I don't mean to be rude, but the way some of the farms have run up there uh, have run on a historical basis and it's very traditional. And I absolutely love it love it it's like a different world but still in this one onto rose shepherd who's emailed with a photograph of um, a bird in a greenhouse i thought i'd contact you to see if you had any advice to prevent birds flying into windows and she said uh, we photographed this sparrowhawk during the summer trapped in our greenhouse overnight and later on in the summer I heard a loud bang and I ran to the source of the noise and saw a sparrowhawk lying on the paving slabs below the front window. This is a bit of an occupational hazard with bird lovers, isn't it? Yes, it it absolutely is. So what happens is when you feed birds in your garden, you kind of magnetise a particular area of where you live for birds, all the birds that you want to come into your garden to feed. And that's really good. But at the same time, you'll attract the predators as well, things like in the evening and overnight um, birds like owls obviously come in and birds of prey during the daylight hours sparrow hawks are absolutely incredible hunters very skillful very fast small agile bright bright yellow eyes long yellow legs as well and very powerful and sharp talons as well although they're only small birds what they do is fly down one side of a hedge and at the last second flip over the top of the hedge almost like a bullet (laughs) the speed is incredible and they take birds by surprise they're kind of stealth hunters if you like i love to watch them hunting and all you generally see is a little puff of feathers because normally their legs outstretch and they catch the bird on the wing as they're flying past and take it off and dismember it um, a few hundred yards away on a sort of stool or a stump or something like that some early morning walkers going past morning morning Morning. Um, sadly with modern house building with more and more and larger areas of glass in modern buildings, particularly the big bifold doors where the entire side of a house appears to be glass, sparrowhawk casualties are going to increase inevitably. It's almost as big a threat to them and their way of hunting as it was when farmers in the 1950s and early 1960s were using DDT and that affected the thickness of sparrowhawk eggs and and so that they actually broke when the female birds were incubating the eggs. Uh, So it is a really difficult issue and thank you for the question Rose. Uh, 
so the only possible thing that you can do is to do what I've done on the office windows here at the farm and in the new building where we've got large areas of glass and that's to stick transfers on of various birds. You can actually see through the transfers but it just acts as a tiny deterrent and whether it's going to be effective on a larger scale because many people don't want the transfers stuck on their windows when you look through but it does seem to help in a, in a minor way. Or the other alternative is to have completely filthy windows so the birds don't fly into it, but uh, that's not really an option. So difficult question, and it's always so sad when you see a beautiful raptor, like a sparrow hawk, uh, with a broken neck. It's so, so sad. Uh, it's just a symptom of our modern way of living. Thank you. Well, uh, hopefully that is a solution for you, Rose. And you've moved someone to poetry here. Um, good morning to, uh, I think, we have a, a listener in Hampshire called Jenna. Yes, Jenna Cazalet, who lives near one of your heroes where he used to live, uh, Gilbert White. Gilbert White down in Selborne down there. Yes, uh, moved to poetry. Most people, when they listen to me, are moved to tears, actually. But, oh, it's such a rewarding experience to have one of your little anthologies here and it's called No More Slows. Yes, Jenna has written lots of poems and she's part of this anthology and the little book has been sent to us and uh, yes, she, she points out No More Slows as a, an example of her love of wildlife. Yes, I opened the book, Jenna, and the first page that it fell open to was the, the anthology of No More Slows and it kind of describes the well, the pillaging of the countryside that hasn't just happened in Norfolk, but down there where you are in Hampshire. Uh, lots of hedge grubbing in the 1960s and 70s. And strangely, that was done under government grant. Farmers were paid, believe it or not, to take their hedges out. <laughs> they say life goes in circles, and certainly history does, that we're now being paid to put the hedges back it's in crazy, again. Isn't it? It, it is crazy, but it's really moving to see how that those changes have been recorded in poetry and this anthology of, of verses. Shall we read out a verse? Yes, go on, Matthew. Oh, I thought you were going to do it. No, no you, um, you, you do it. Well, you're, you're more articulate. I keep stopping halfway through. Oh, nonsense. I, I didn't bring my glasses either. Well, Jenna Cazalet has sent us the book that she's contributed to, which is called The Unicorn Poetry Anthology, and it's published by Actian Press, and... One of her poems is called No More Slows. They've dug up the hedge in the top field, severing the roots where rabbits flashed, their scuts at tardy dogs. No more slows. To stab and drown the rowan and the holly down, traveller's joy trails its way through mud and stone. Tree sparrow, yellow hammer, the dunnock gone goodness that's so moving and very true but i can promise you there's a huge turnaround in farmers care of nature we, we farm most of the land in the united kingdom obviously we produce food but there's a big shift happening it's turning slowly and well we're doing it here in Norfolk because the Norfolk motto is do different. And I've started that and I put some signs up round a farm explaining 
that I am doing different. And we just heard some people walking through the centre of the farm on the permissive walks there at the farm. Uh, they're all free. You can make a donation if you like. But it's lovely, safe walking and you can do it all year round. And you can see some of the wildlife that you wouldn't normally ordinarily see and we are stuffed to the gunnels with yellow hammers and we're also standing by a little road so cars going past there somebody's waving <laughs> um, well, well I mean if you would like to send a note in to Chris then uh, we'd be delighted to receive it and the best way of doing that probably is uh, via email and the address is chris at countrysidepodcast.co UK. But you can also write to the farm as well. I think there's a postal address. Isn't yes, there? there is. It's High Ash Farm, Case Door, St Edmund, Norwich, Norfolk, and the postcode NR148RD. And you don't have to be moved to poetry to write in. Don't no. worry if it doesn't rhyme. No, exactly that. But uh, in, in future weeks, future podcasts, Matthew, I'm going to be taking into you, you into one of the Yellowhammer hides and one of the woodland hides as well. There, We're right at the end of November. This is the time of the year that I start fueling up the hides and I'm going to be sitting in there with you. We're going to be doing some lazy bird watching. That'll be right up your street. <laughs> and uh, just see what we can see, because you never know. But the yellow hammers from now on, they were mentioned in that poem. They start to get their yellow heads and get into breeding plumage already at the end of the year they're then ready to find mates early next year this is a sound yard production music is by tom harris Hello, it's Anna from Soundyard here. Now, a few weeks back, you might remember, we mentioned that we'll be sending out posters to spread the word about the Countryside podcast. Well, thank you for getting in touch with all your suggestions and the offers to help us do this. If you think you can help too, by sharing a poster in your local area, then just ping us an email, chris at countrysidepodcast.co.uk. And a special thank you again if you've been helping us fund our CD service for people without the internet, for whom the company of Chris and Matthew each week is hugely important. It really means a lot. Head to donorbox.org forward slash countryside podcast if it's something you'd like to do too.